Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandro Bronfman. My guest today is Dylan Robbins, and I'm talking to him about his new book, Audible Geographies in Latin America, Sounds of Race and Place. It was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. The book sits at the intersection of studies of race making as situated in place and sound studies approached via technology and with attention to the voice. It's a stunning and new way to think about Cuba and Brazil from the late 19th century to the 1960s. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Dylan. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Alejandra. Thank you for the, for the, the, the opportunity to talk with you about, about my book. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Yeah, I, I am, I'm really um, excited to talk to you about this book. But I want to start with just you telling us a little bit about how did you get the idea for this book? Where does the idea come from? Um, yeah, I think that, um, the, 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 the final, I guess, um, organization of the book and, and it's overall, uh, I guess, set of questions evolved over time from my dissertation project, uh, in a, in a languages and literatures, cultural studies department, um, uh, Spanish and Portuguese. Um, and then I guess that initial project uh, I was I was I was interested in trying to understand music and citizenship or popular music and citizenship in in Cuba and Brazil, and the 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 concept of citizenship. I think I originally uh, was approaching through uh, more classical political theory, uh, and was driven by concerns with with participation and uh, presence. Uh, in any ways in which uh, folks who might necessarily see themselves uh, resonated or reflected in the state might otherwise try to to manifest themselves publicly. Um, and I think that that project reached a, a certain level of saturation and exhaustion uh, because of the kinds of sources that I was working with. Uh, I, I found myself uh, in some ways trying to look past the sources, uh, many of them you know, state-sponsored uh, intellectuals or state-sponsored initiatives. Uh, in that initial project, I was almost kind of trying to reconstruct a little bit too deliberately from these sources to what those other subjectivities could be. Uh, and over time, I realized that the story that maybe I was more interested in telling or that seemed more productive was to just better understand these sources because they were so strange uh, in some cases that I guess many of our conventional assumptions about what a, a state-sponsored, you know, mechanism of control or social control could be seem to break down. Uh, and that is in some ways how the, the, the present organization of the book came about was uh, becoming less concerned with doing the work of reconstructing something through sources uh, and rather just trying to understand uh, the strangeness of some of the sources that, that I had in front of me. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I always tell my students the story is in the sources. Yeah. Um, so, so why, why Cuba and Brazil? Um, well, I think there, 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 there are personal motivations there uh, that then uh, later became more, more clearly uh, intellectual uh, or material. Uh you know, I guess in a, in a former life as a musician, um, much of the music that I was interested in and which I played at, uh, was, was from the Americas, from the Caribbean and from Brazil, uh, and then it's different connections with, with North American music. Um, and uh, the, the two large poles, I think, for Afro-Diasporic musics, uh, or you know some of the your, some of the larger polls for Afro diasporic music in the Americas are 
uh, or, or Brazil and Cuba uh, and, you know, obviously the United States, uh, among other places. So it was an initially um, a, a, a connection made through music and musical production, which may not at all be evident in the book because so little of the book is actually talking about music. <laughs> but the uh, connection was uh, initially one uh, that was through that map of the Afro-Americans um, that uh, is in some ways formed by by those places. Yeah. Right, yeah. And I think of your book as putting into conversation the work of Anna Ochoa, Jonathan Stern, Stéphane Palmier, Fred Moten, and then layering in people like Arcadio Diaz-Quinones and others. So does that seem fair? Are there other, other people that you sort of drew inspiration from? No, I definitely, I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah, I think I think that's 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 a that's a that's a, that's the major framework there. Um, uh, clearly, folks who work at the intersection of of anthropology, and sound studies, cultural studies, uh, musicology, uh, uh, literary studies, or literary analysis, and who are all informed in some way, shape, or form by, I guess, the Latin American and Caribbean variants of postcolonial studies. Um, and critical race theory, uh, which is a, is a complicated tangle of, of things, I think, just because of the, the very different histories of, of, uh, of, of the Americas, of, of uh, some of the, uh, the concerns that inform those areas of inquiry. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think from the vantage point of the North American Academy, uh, and I'm certainly, you know, this this book was a struggle with that is the is the is the difficulty in engaging um uh, a theoretical production from latin america and the caribbean uh which I, is something that as i you know go through the book again i i continually feel is is somehow unfinished work in the book uh is to is to 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 find ideas about sound uh, or uh, about about the voice, for example, that that are that are, I guess, more contextually specific to the realities of Latin America and the Caribbean. I think one of those places uh, that I do do some of that work in a way that I've felt a little happier about in the book is in the discussion of voice, um, which just in, in English, you know, has a set of connotations because of the way that term can be used both literally and figuratively in English. Uh, and then it has another set of connotations entirely uh, when we look at the word voz uh, in Spanish or, or voice uh, in Portuguese because of the, the kinds of expressions that, that that word can be used in in those languages really open doors upon um, uh, new ways of thinking theoretically about the voice. Um, I think in, in uh, the chapter that I have on the the uh, laboratory of, of experimental phonetics in Cuba, uh, there's a moment where the use of voice, which can mean uh, dialect or idiom in Spanish, um, it, the, it, it somehow collapses with voice as actually that which is produced by the, the sound, which is produced by the, the body, right? Um, and there seems to be some slippage uh, in the work that's done there. And it's I think precisely because there's that simultaneity of different meanings with that same word in Spanish that doesn't exist, for example, in English, that, that this sort of unusual thing takes place there that tells us something about the voice uh, as, a, as a concept in a Spanish-speaking context that, that you don't necessarily get in an English-speaking context. Yeah, um, yeah that, um, I loved that chapter, and I want to oh. get back to it because I found it really, really fascinating. But before we get there, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, no, it's okay. It's okay. Um, uh, it, uh, I just wanted to get through uh, to a couple of things first because it sort of that chapter comes at a specific place almost in your argument, and I wanted to um, talk a, a little bit about um, some other things that you do before that. And one of them is that um, it, there's there's this kind of double thing that happens in this book that's that was to me really exciting. One is you write, you take on um, the work of um, some authors that people write about a lot that we think we know, um, people like Fernando Ortiz or Nina Rodriguez, right? Um, and uh, you find just all this new 
new ways to talk about them. Um, so that that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you bring in these stories about technology and um, kind of little known artifacts like this speech lab, which I found completely fascinating and we'll talk about more. But then also technologies that, again, we think we know, but but you you give us these whole new ways to think about them. Um, and you start with a phonograph, right? Um, and the book kind of opens with a phonograph and you tie it into racialization. And that's, a, you know, it's, it's in dialogue with people like Michael Denning and Alexander Wehali, but you also take that in a, in a really different direction. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your decision to introduce the book with the phonograph and, and sort of use that to, to sort of set up the whole, the whole book really. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. That's, um, that's one of the things I didn't mention, I guess, earlier when I was talking about some of the motivations of the book and one of the things that, that makes this, what the final, I guess, organization of the book so much different than the project that I originally set out to do in the dissertation. And that is the, the realization that there's a story about technology here that, that, that I needed to, to somehow explore and, 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 and unfold. Um, and it, 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 it probably goes back to, uh, a, a really wonderful story, uh, by the, 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 the short story writer Horacio Quiroga, um, about, uh, that, that Julio Ramos addresses in, uh, in his, you know, classic, uh, Desencuentros de la Modernidad, uh, in which there's this orange juice machine that is somehow, uh, brought from afar, uh, and which doesn't quite work right in the context. And there's like a really interesting story there about technology and environment. Um, and uh, it, it, I think it's an ongoing theme too, like in, in studies of silent film in the Americas and certainly uh, with uh, recording technology in the Americas, whether I think of Ruth Glasser's book, uh, My Music is My Flag, in that beginning section where she talks about the RCA Victor steamship that would go from port to port and the different ways that people's musical instruments might be altered to be recorded and so forth. And um, I, I guess there, it just seemed that maybe through the actual device itself, there was a, there was a story to tell um, that had more to do with that moment of inscription and recording and less to do with that moment of distribution and consumption. Uh, which I think is is something that I, I really got from Denning's work. For example, it's, it's you know that kind of decolonization of, of of listening is 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 really dependent upon that moment of of reception uh, and consumption. And I think there's another story there about that moment of inscription or recording that that there's an interesting uh, 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 transfer or transformation that's taking place. So uh, the, the 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 phonograph. Uh, has a really interesting sort of history, in, in my opinion, that has, there's more to tell than what I could put in the book uh, about its reception in Brazil. And, and, and it's this really ambivalent uh, treatment. I mean, there's a lot of skepticism uh, about what the use of the phonograph could be in that context. And this is, of course, before the phonograph was seen as a, an instrument to record music with and to just read music, but rather just something that was related to speech and certain ideas about the human voice. Uh, and not unlike you see in the United States with the telegraph, uh, in Brazil, there's a almost supernatural uh, uh, understanding or approach to the phonograph uh, that is uh, within the unique context that it's received in Brazil, also tied into to notions of, of spirit possession um, and trance. And, and, and it coincidentally, uh, not necessarily the, the spirit possession and trance that one would uh, see frequently uh, cited as part of candomblé or uh, any of the Afro-diasporic uh, religious practices in northeastern Brazil, um, but also that you would see in spiritism, like the, the, the sort of uh, socially more prestigious or more acceptable forms of mysticism that was extremely popular among the Brazilian elite at that time, to the, to the effect that um, you even have this one, uh, who I talk about briefly uh, in the chapter on the phonograph in Brazil in the, in the 1890s, um, you have this one really sort of boring uh, Latinist uh, grammarian uh, who had 
taken it upon himself to root out all the all the anglicisms and uh, you know French loan words and Brazilian Portuguese and some of his other work. Begins writing a column in a in a newspaper called O Fonógrafo or the Phonograph, in which he um, channels the spirits of, of of different you know deceased Brazilians and also people from you know thousands of years ago, commenting on uh, the birth of the Brazilian Republic. Which is a really odd thing in a way, uh, and there it was, and you know, featured in, in a really important newspaper at the time. Uh, and so, on the one hand, you have you know this reception of the phonograph, and then on the other hand, you have the medical school in in Bahia, uh, in which you know there's work uh, being done on uh, how the phonograph can permanently alter your consciousness and how great care should be uh, uh, exercised in listening to phonograph because it could it could uh, it could make you in some ways uh, a, an inadequate citizen. <laughs> and this, of course, is taking place within the, 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 the uh, you know, the context of discussions about, uh, about uh, mass, uh, uh, mass trance episodes, uh, a dancing plague that was apparently witnessed uh, in, in, in Salvador de Bahia and other parts of the state of Bahia, northeastern Brazil at that time, and which received press before even Nino Rodriguez started writing about it. It was a, you know, as a cause of, of concern uh, in the Gazeta Magica de Bahia at the time. Uh, and so there just, there seemed to be this network of associations related to the ownership of one's voice uh, and that were accompanied both by the, the presence and the reception of the phonograph at that time uh, in Brazil, uh, and then at the same time with the study of mediumistic religions. And the cases that interested me the most were, were those in northeastern Brazil related to the candomblé. So I don't know if that responded entirely to the question. Absolutely, about why the yeah. Phonograph no, was there, but that's... Well, it does. I mean, it opens up all of these different stories at once, right? And in the middle of it is this phonograph, which, like I said, you know, we think we know this. We, we've had wonderful work by, you know, Lisa Gittleman and all these other people, but you, you just bring in so many new and different kinds of stories to it. So I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and so, and then we, you know, you move to Nina Rodriguez and Ortiz, which I, as I said earlier, you know, we, we also thought we knew those guys and um, you really uh, show us the ways that they're listening for race. Um, and I, I, that was just so fascinating to me. And I think, how did we, including me, because I've written about Ortiz, miss that, you know? And, and so I, I would love to um, hear more about the process by which you arrived at that. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, hmm. I think that's a difficult question. I think, no, really, because I think that, um, you know, I think it's a natural point of entry into a lot of the problems that I was interested with. I mean, Ortiz is, you know, is, uh, is, is, you know, I mean, he was so prolific and he was so present and so, uh, um, uh, in some ways opinionated <laughs> and, and right. pretty yeah. much the whole, you know, 20th century history of, of the, of, of studying Afro, you know, Cuban ethnicities, uh, in, in, in some ways, even with the recuperation of many of the 19th century texts that I was interested in, uh, in, in the discussion of Ortiz, um, that, you know, it's like all, all paths in some way have to kind of cross through him or something that he's edited mm -hmm. or re-edited or recovered or actively ignored um, uh, as well. So um, I, I, I think that um, there was a, the, the listening for racialized speech or the listening for blackness that is in Ortiz, I, I think I, 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 I realized that it was something that he was getting from early uh, Cuban grammarians and dialectologists uh, who were interested in Cuban speech and language, um, and and then the, you know his contribution is to to try to invert the the pathologization of this speech and 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 offer it as an emblem of Cuban speech. While he has contemporaries like Diego who are actively trying to eradicate it from Cuban speech, any element that can be perceived as an Africanized feature of of Cuban Spanish. Um, but I, 
the I think the nineteenth century uh, intellectuals that that Ortiz was reading uh, were more interested in lexicographical features of Spanish, and so actual words that could somehow be traced back to having a West or a Central African origin. Um, however incorrect or inaccurate those sources may have been uh, in some of their assumptions. And with by the end of the 19th century and with the transition already elsewhere beyond Cuba, the transition from philology to phonetics, uh, that is from, you know, a transition from a, an, a textual engagement with language uh, to um, an actual experiential relationship to language. Um, uh, there's all of a sudden the possibility for thinking about the very sounds of Cuban Spanish is as having uh, some kind of origin elsewhere that is not the Iberian Peninsula necessarily, uh, and that's that's where the experimental phonetics laboratory comes into place, and and I think that you know Diego is someone I first found out about by reading. Um, by reading his preface to Ortiz's lexicon of, of Africanized uh, Cuban Spanish words. There's this kind of very terse, uh, very reserved uh, preface where, you know, you it's probably one of the most uncongratulatory things that he could have ever written <laughs> to preface the book. I mean, it, you know, it's like, a, it's hard to tell that he really wanted to write that preface. And Well, and, you know, Ortiz got a lot of praise, so, you know, he could probably take him down a notch or two, absolutely, maybe. <laughs> because, you know, you could also write, and that's one of the things that's, that's so difficult for me about reading Ortiz is because, you know, at the same time that he's celebrating these Africanized features of Cuban Spanish, you know, he's also calling for... Uh, uh, you know, an, a, a, an end to Haitian and Jamaican braceros or labor yeah. coming working on sugar plantations, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's he's not a he's not a champion in any clear sense of, of no, of not, black not human at all. Culture, as we yeah. all know, right? Um, and yet, and yet, curiously, his work is is uh, an important window and resource upon some of the things, um, even despite his his best intentions or worst intentions. Well, this, yeah, I mean, he does. I mean, he bridges so many stages, actually. And if you follow, you know, the whole career, it, it's kind of mind boggling how many things he does. But he does. Um, in terms of the lexicon, I was thinking about that, because, of course, there are all of these kinds of glossaries in the backs of his books. Right. Um, and then um, this transition to thinking about speech phonetically and sonically also has to do with the technology, right? It has to do with the capacity to measure and to visualize, as you say in the chapter about the, um, the speech lab. Um, so he does kind of bridge all of these um, different things. And the, the other thing that I thought was really interesting about that whole moment was that, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff about Creole languages in the Caribbean and um, Haitian Creole and Jamaican Creole and those kinds of things, but I think that the Spanish-speaking, um, the Spanish-speaking islands haven't been sort of incorporated into that set of literatures because the idea is that they don't really have Creoles, right? And I think that what your work really shows is the ways that they did and do, and the kinds of um, repressive maneuvers that 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 went on around them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the, there seems to be this ongoing question is within, uh, you know, within uh, the study of Spanish dialectology, Lipsky's work, for example, is a whole book dedicated basically to trying to understand why is it the Spanish, uh, why didn't Spanish creolize in the way that other languages did? Um, and, uh, and I think it's a fascinating question because it, it's, it's, it's also, uh, you know, sort of the window upon all the different social relationships that, 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 uh, go into creating a language. Right. Um, and, and just the, the, the concrete circumstances of, of what it probably was to speak a language that wasn't your own, uh, in a very isolated environment, like that many slaves were living in, uh, in the rural areas of Cuba at the time, uh, how do we account for the fact that 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 level of creolization didn't take place um, that you see, for example, in, let's just say, Colombia and La Costa and San Basilio, uh, or, you know, how do you account for Papiamento? And, uh, and this is really, as someone I'm not, you know, I'm not 
trained as a sociolinguist, but because of my background in languages and literatures, these are questions that I've, I've explored in, in, uh, in, in, through some of my other work, but not to this, not, not with these same sources, I guess, um, which is why well, it was fun to return to it here. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, so let's talk more about this speech lab. <laughs> um, so maybe um, a small description of what it actually was, because I found it uh, fascinating in terms of what kinds of um, tools and technologies were, were, were being used, the, the tongue shaper and all of those kinds of things. Um, and then h- how did you find it? Uh, it? It seems like there's really not that much to go on, right? You have a few archival traces, but not that not that much. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. 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 So it's um, it's uh, yeah. There's very little written about it, and it from apparently its work was never really brought to fruition because of problems with the equipment and the uh, and not being able to get certain key items to do the work. So. Um, it, it's not clear exactly what those circumstances are, and I would love to be able to do more archival work uh, with a De Eagle archive uh, to understand that better. But it's it's interesting because it was the only experimental phonetics laboratory in Latin America uh, at, at, for its time, um, and uh, and so it was a very unique uh, a unique uh, endeavor. Uh, for 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 the region, right? Uh, and and yet, uh, in any of the the commemorations of Diego uh, upon his retirement in the nineteen forties, um, there's no mention made of, of the laboratory or, or any of its work. And yet, uh, at the time that the laboratory was created, right when the University of Havana moves to its present location. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, written about it, right? As to, you know, it's all laid out. You can see pictures of its different rooms, of its different equipment, uh, and there are descriptions of the kind of work that it's going to be done, that it's going to be done there. And there's also mention of the, of the kind of designs that Diego had for, for Spanish, Cuban Spanish, uh, and other of his work on, on, on Cuban dialect. Um, so from there, I was able to to piece together uh, an overall project there, which I try to to lay out uh, in the book, um, which is really a story that's also told through the actual objects and the instruments that are there, the actual technology that's there. And so you mentioned the tongue guides uh, that that there's an image of there in the book, which are wooden handles, these metal bars bent in different ways. And they're there um, to, to... to, to show a speaker where their tongue should be placed to pronounce uh, different different sounds. Um, and the counterpart of that too is a, is a technique that was used uh, in, 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 di- in, in experimental phonetics at the time, which is this palette uh, print um, that, uh, you know, an artificial palette would be placed in someone's mouth uh, with different powders or inks, and they would be asked to pronounce different sounds. And the way that tongue would, you know, touch against the palate would leave a mark. And that mark is described not just by the eagle, by, but by other experimental uh, uh, phonetics uh, specialists at the time as a mapping of a nation, of a race, through its, the movements of its tongues and therefore of the sound that would be produced through the exact placement of the tongue at that point. So there are these instruments uh, that sought to... Uh, quantify by visualizing uh, movements that were really uh, not seen as significant just 20 years before or 30 years before um, as a way of trying to pinpoint the exact specificity of a language through its sounds. Uh, and that, that for me was just really fascinating. I just got so carried away with it, probably too much so, but um, uh, it, it, it was clear that uh, certain sounds, uh, uh, certain consonants, D's, R's, L's, pronounced in a particular way were perceived as a quote-unquote contamination or uh, a deviance uh, or more specifically a vice, un vicio, uh, that in some ways departed from what was Peninsular Spanish or what would be an adequate Cuban Spanish. And this is way in which whiteness was coded. Uh, uh, for for Diego and, and many of his contemporaries, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the mapping on of race onto those, I mean, it, it's really, it's fascinating and it's, it does resonate with, you know, the museum of anthropology, which was existing in the, in the university of Havana at the exact same time was doing those kinds of things with, you know, the kinds of the forceps and the head measuring and, and all of that kind of stuff. So they're really kind of mapping bodies and race um, and in your case, sound, making the voice part of the body in this very kind of concrete, scientific, scientized way. Um, yeah. Oh, that, it's fascinating. Yeah. No, and I think, yeah. Yeah, and I think your, your, you know, your first book was really important in helping me understand different ways to approach that, too. So, um, as, you, as you know, so... Um, well, I did not mean to make that into a, <laughs> an advertisement for my book. Oh, um, no, I don't think there needs to be an advertisement for your book for anybody in our area. I mean, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that, yeah. No need to advertise. Let's already well known. But <laughs> um, anyway, uh, let's, so I want to move on to chapter four because I, uh-huh. I found the way that you um, shaped that chapter really cool. Um, in the way that it pulls together Cuba and Brazil, right? Because in the book, you sort of move back and forth between the two places. But this but this chapter, in, in a way, just pulls them together. And you do that by looking, t- telling us about Mario de Andrade's reading of Alejo Carpentier's novel, Equi Yamba O, and um, literally the pencil marks in the margins, right? And so you use that as a kind of device to, to, to think about how one... Um, one intellectual is reading um, the work of another and sort of thinking about sound through that text. And it's really fascinating. So um, I wonder if you could, and then it sort of walks us backwards through how did we get to that point, right? So that that's a, um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how, why you organize the chapter that way and how it sort of contributes to the broader argument that you're trying to make. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think... Um... I think the time period that that, that chapter attempts to address um, the 1920s and 1930s and the the ascendancy of the national popular state in in many parts of the world uh, and that that strange inversion that takes place where all of a sudden uh, Afro-diasporic musical and performing cultures uh, can become emblematic of a nation, whereas just a few years before they were seen as in some ways. Uh, strictly criminal all the while also continuing to be criminalized and let's just be very clear about this um uh it it seemed to me the hardest period to talk about uh, in a way and um it, although there's so much written about this period and there's so much written about Mario Gendraji and about Alejo Carpentier and, and specifically about uh, their interest in popular music um despite a, a lot of that work uh, there seem to be some some questions that that remain for me about uh, why they could why Mario Gendraji could be interested in Alejo Carpentier because although they may have had shared interests in Afro-diasporic cultures, um, they couldn't be more different in some ways. Um, uh, I think Mario Gendraji, you know, was was a very proud Brazilian nationalist. And I think Carpentier, especially at this moment, had a very ambivalent relationship to Cuba. Uh, and the idea of a Cuban nationalism was more interested in a kind of pan-Antillian uh, uh, sense of territory um, and one really deeply rooted in Afro-diasporic cultures and the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and whereas Mario Andrade didn't want too much blackness in his Brazil. So to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for Carpentier, being black was synonymous with being Cuban, as it was for his contemporary Nicolas Guillén. Um, and yet, they they're they're so interested in some of the same things. They're they're interested in trance. They're interested in musical performance. They're interested in dance. They're interested in musical instruments, uh, and as as material objects. Um, they're both interested in avant-garde aesthetics and surrealism, uh, for example, and what, what's taking place in Western Europe in terms of this sort of Afrophilia uh, uh, that you see in, in Paris, to be sure, but also in other parts of Western Europe. 
Uh, and uh, they're also both interested in, in what's taking place uh, among the African-American, in, in the African-American or Black American intellectual tradition. Um, so the, the idea was to start with Marie Jandraji reading La Leha Carpentier to, to somehow foreground the strangeness of the book, I guess, as being the bridge between their two interests in sound. Um, they really depended upon uh, writing and reading and the, 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 the circulation of the book to get their work out and become familiar with other people's work. Uh, and yet at the same time, they were both deeply invested in music, performed music that, that couldn't be recorded necessarily, or recordings of, of music as well. Um, both of them dabbled in radio to different extents. Uh, Mario Jandraji created a really uh, important uh, library of, of vinyl records, of discs, uh, with another uh, musicologist uh, in Sao Paulo uh, at the time, which still exists, still there today. You can consult it there. Um, and uh, they were they they had a there was a media consciousness uh, for both of them uh, that manifested in different ways. So the 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 fact that this these markings uh, in Equa Jambo existed in Mario Andrade's library, which is preserved at the University of São Paulo, at the Instituto Superior de Estudos Brasileiros, um, was, a, was, I guess, one of those little snapshots of something that happened for me. And I was just, it, for me, it was so unexpected and so odd uh, in a way, because from my understanding before ever finding out that Mario Jandraji had read Carpentier's first book, Equa Jambo, um, is that, you know, that was a book that, that, that uh, Carpentier had disowned, that he didn't like, he thought it was kind of a pedestrian attempt at uh, writing about uh, a novel about an Afro-Cuban protagonist. And it is a fairly unsophisticated text in many ways. Uh, <laughs> it is, I mean, especially compared to some of his later work, right? Um, and yet uh, it was published in Spain initially during his exile there, uh, 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 during the Machado regime uh, in Cuba. And how did that end up in Mario's? How did Mario know about for me I'm still puzzled by that and yet this book is there so um, through the the things that interested Mario apparently in that text um, I tried to trace out a network of of different relationships that they called upon in order to understand the relationships between diaspora and nationalism uh, in in that period which is really the fundamental contradiction for me in this emergence of the national popular state this nationalization of 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 of, of, of you know Afro diasporic musical traditions enter into conflict with the fact that they're diasporic um, and they move across national boundaries and that you have these subjects that are moving across these national boundaries and speaking languages that aren't the imperial languages when they first come here uh, and those traditions in some ways map out this other geography that is not national. <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> and, right. and and I just I was intrigued to see how they they struggled with that and in the case of Maruji Andraji you know he was very very critical of the influence of Cuban music and Brazilian music he did not he he, he saw Cuban music as as in some ways contaminating uh Brazilian popular music is altering the samba form is encouraging in some ways uh listeners uh to have something presented as samba that wasn't even samba as in the case as he talks about with um el manicero or the peanut vendor which he knew through re american recordings largely mario Jandraji did uh and which for him spawned uh a number of, of different genres of samba in brazil or not or variants of the samba genre in brazil um that depended upon this sort of static Harmony, this oscillation back and forth between you know two different chords. Kekia uh, Bayanatein um, is a composition that that is is most frequently cited. That is basically a son montuno form, uh, and yet which is a song celebrating the bayana, <laughs> and which some people see as a samba. Uh, but it it you know samba traditionally has a lot more harmonic movement. There are chords that fly by in a samba or they can, uh, especially in that time period and that song is, is harmonically very static. It's more characteristic of what you hear in the song at the same 
time of the 1930s. Uh, and for, for Mari Jindraji, this is evidence of, uh, of, of a blackness that moves uh, across national borders in, in, in the Americas and which complicates the, the really uh, specific project he had for the formation of a national Brazilian sound through this somewhat even mix of both Amerindian Afro-diasporic and Portuguese-European influences that were supposed to fuse to create what he thought was a Brazilian race, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, Carpentier could not have been less interested in anything like that. <laughs> and I just think that's yeah. really funny. Yeah. And, and, and yet there's this kind of convergence. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, one of the things about that chapter, too, is that you work... Across, I mean, music slips back in, but in this very sort of unexpected way, and you're working across all these different forms of media. That, that, you know, the recording comes into it, but then also textuality and, and um, different forms of sound performance and recording and things like that. And then you, you know, in the final chapter, you you uh, introduce yet another medium, which is film. Um, and and again, the, the the kind of transmedia approach is really important. Um, and so in the last chapter, you talk about noise, noise and the Cuban revolution and in film. And so um, maybe we can start to wrap up with, um, with you talking a little bit about why, why noise and why does it matter? Why does it matter in the Cuban revolution? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think that um, noise is one of those concepts uh, that, that, uh, has been explored significantly, right? Um, it's it's it, it, it felt daunting to even. Dis- I mean, I had a hard time deciding that I, I should even talk about noise because of, there's so much to do with that concept. Um, uh, as you know, anybody who works in sound studies knows. I mean, there's just you know, there's so much written about it. Um, mm-hmm. And but the focus on the technology of, of film production allowed me to narrow it down um, to the the kind of noise that I was interested in, uh, and 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 the I guess the realities of Cuban film production uh, uh, beginning in the late 1950s and, and into the 1960s, which is the period I'm really interested in uh, in this chapter. Um, it is engaging with uh, a certain new circumstance with sound recording and the portability of sound recording uh, to make documentary film. Uh, and noise in that case is all that excess, all that's everything that, that was inadvertently recorded uh, uh, with the sound recorder uh, as part of uh, the camera and the street uh, approach to, to making documentary. What, what do you do with that noise? At the same time, th- there was a, you know, an ongoing discussion, uh, especially in the first years of the revolution, as to what what would constitute um, a revolutionarily acceptable sound in public. You know, um, as you, you know, you uh, as, as I discuss in the in the in the chapter, um, the the jukebox is initially banned, right, uh, because it's seen as noisy. Right, Uh, and there that band is eventually reversed, and and just to give to get a sense of just how significant the discussion about the jukebox noise was, I mean, Fidel Castro participated apparently directly in that discussion, right? I mean, he participated in a lot of discussions because you know he was uh, quite the micromanager as we all know. Right. So, um, but nonetheless, it was significant enough that he actually became directly involved in the conversations. And so what was initially a ban of the jukebox was, was, was later reversed. Uh, and the justifications for that reversal of the ban of the jukebox had to do with acknowledging that the sounds of the juice jukebox were the sounds of, of productivity, right? That there was a whole industry behind it. There were people who repaired the machines. There were all the different artists who depended upon it in order to be heard because they didn't perform uh, uh, and so forth. And once it was understood to be an industry uh, engaged in a certain kind of productivity, then all of a sudden those could be considered 
to be favorable industrial noises. At the same time, you know, you have the history of noise ordinances, which you have also written about in your work on the carnival and uh, the beginning of the 20th century in Cuba, right? Um, which became a mechanism of control for Afro-Cuban populations, right? So um, noise ordinances, um, as they still are, right, um, are just part of the story, just the tip of the iceberg, right? So uh, they're geared towards the, the prohibition of certain instruments and certain dances of certain festivals and certain rituals. Um, and th- that was another ongoing uh, discussion within the Cuban revolution as to how to, how to, to take the quote unquote noise of the drum and make it revolutionary. Uh, and that culminates for me um, in, in some ways in the, this short documentary film that I talk about there on the first socialist carnival. Um, uh, in which, you know, you have the Neme or these Abaqua, uh, uh, you know, figures, uh, who are dressed in this, you know, traditional costume that's been documented since the 19th century, uh, in Cuba and been the very visual representation of, of, a of a criminal organization for some early white Cuban intellectuals, right? All of a sudden these become emblematic of the Cuban revolution and a resistance to, to North American imperialism. Uh, and so that, and, and there's a story about noise there that I try to tease out uh, and, and how it becomes nationalized and in some ways politicized as part of a, a socialist agenda. Um, yeah. I don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, part of the, what's so, what's so, um, what you, what you suggest and what you show in the chapter also is this ability of so many Cuban filmmakers to sort of, be part of the debate, but also comment on the debate, even as they're taking part in it. And so, like, you can never quite tell if it's a critique or a or a, or a confirmation. <laughs> and yeah. there's there's a kind of there's a way to, to double read almost everything um, that, that that a Cuban filmmaker makes. So, absolutely, I think that's I think that's, that, there, that's yeah. that excess, right? It's all yeah. that stuff they capture and don't necessarily right. set out to do. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, I've taken up lots of your time, but just as a way to kind of um, maybe bring this into the present, the book ends in the 1960s, and maybe that's, um, and it's plenty, um, certainly, um, but I wonder if you think that there are any resonances that carry us into the present. Um, Are there ways that rethinking this kind of past moves us into a different kind of future? I'm thinking of David Scott, of course, here. Um, but I, I was just wondering, just curious to hear your thoughts about any any ways that um, these kinds of issues resonate um, today, if you think they do at all. <laughs> they don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I think they do. Um, I, I, I think that you know the, the the book ends with a little note, really, um, that 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 tries to reestablish a continuity between North America and, and Latin America um, as, a, as a geography of, uh, that has a shared history despite its many differences. Um, and uh, it, what, I, what, I, what I sense about the present uh, is also what I fear. <laughs> and um, that, uh, that, that, um, Wow. I, I'm so, I, I think the excess of the present and the density of the moment is so overwhelming for me that I, it's hard for me to even put it into words. Yeah, I mean, the, the, present, the present that you were writing in is a very different from what it is now even, right? So like, so many things have changed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I don't know if I can answer that question. <laughs> That's okay. I, I can't answer I can it answer. either. I don't know if I can. Yeah, I don't. Really. Um, I think, I think the, that's... the media has changed. I mean, media, the media technologies uh, overlap in interesting ways, and but the landscape has it seems to have changed significantly, and yet the the common the, they're the common problems moving across, and I'm s- so shocked by 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 what's taking place in the United States right now that it's. It, it, it's um, it's really it's hard for me to to even articulate 
uh, I think the, the relationship to the book uh, in a way or to some of the problems described in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I um I I agree and I mean also Brazil, right? Because Brazil is Absolutely. undergoing its own sort of um set of crises. Um, As we see, for example, you know, drug traffickers contracted by evangelical groups to attack Candomblés. And it's like, okay, so (laughs) I've seen this before in the historical record, but uh, no, I haven't seen this before in the historical record. You know, there's something very similar about it and at the same time something just incomprehensible like uh, that I really don't. Yeah, that I'm having a hard time processing. Yeah. Well, it's just—I mean, in some ways, it's—it's it's a matter of um, putting these things in the same analytical lens. We—we we have become even more dependent on the media and on technologies and on sort of hearing people's voices and all of that kind of thing, literally and figuratively. And you know, the, the issues of corporation racial, racialization have certainly not gone away. Um, so. Yeah, I think, there. I think I, I think too. Just g- going back to something I was uh, I, I mentioned before. And sorry if this is redundant, but uh, I, I think that there's a, there's a way in which I continue to 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 grapple with how the language that we have and that we use really sort of corrals us or guides us towards being able to to come to certain kinds of conclusions. And that's mm. one of the things that that's part of the work that I think the book really wanted to do was to mm-hmm. visit some concepts within sound studies and to ask, you know, what would their valence be if approached from another language? Um, as I mentioned before with the voice or another one that I was thinking about, which comes up in the Mario Gendragi and Carpentier chapter, uh, which is contratempo or uh, which would be upbeat uh, and translated to upbeat in English, but contratempo uh, in, in Portuguese can mean so many different things. It can mean setback, it can mean, uh, uh, you know, out of placeness as well. It doesn't just strictly mean upbeat. And so um, how these concepts, just because of the words, can map into different uh, different places, um, either inhibit or uh, encourage thinking through certain things. And so I think about the present. I'm, I just, I'm struggling with how, maybe some of the closed doors of the present might be because of the language we're using, but I, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think the solution is there. <laughs> no, I mean, not a solution, but <laughs> we're, we're no, we don't need a solution. We don't need a solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, but the, but it is true that one of the things that your book does very beautifully is um, not, not directly and not um, in a kind of accusatory way, but really sort of point to, the unquestioned uh, whiteness of sound studies for such a long time. I mean, it, that's changing, um, and it's changed. It's been changing for a while. But um, the initial and admittedly brilliant work of a lot of the sound studies people had this kind of unquestioned northern, you know, European perspective. And um, you, you don't, you don't need to sort of make a huge point of it. But the whole book mm. does make that point. Mm. Oh, thanks. thanks. Yeah. So, thank you. It has been such a pleasure, as always, talking to you today. No, Alejandra, no, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for for the insightful questions and the opportunity to to talk about the book with you. Yeah. It's uh, delightful. Yeah. <laughs>